Welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. Uh, good morning, Trinity Life. Um, yeah, before I begin, I just want to say thank you to everyone who... Is it okay? Sound? Okay. I just want to say thank you to everybody who texted me this whole week and, and just prayed for me. And um, just even this morning, um, some people that I didn't know came up and, and prayed for me. And I was just telling Missy earlier, um, I just finished the gym and, and I got a text message and she never texts me for like anything, like ever. And so I see the last name and it says Seaman. And so I'm like, oh, Mike's such a great guy. You know, he texts me and he's encouraging me and, and you know, he prayed for me. And then I read the first name and it's Missy. <laughs> and so, um, nah, but he, he reminded me that he, he prayed for me all week. And so, yeah, just, I'm just overwhelmed by everyone's prayers and I just felt so encouraged this week. Um, and so thank you. Thank you guys for that. And so as, as Mike said, um, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the church planting pastors here. Uh, today I'll be preaching on the gospel. And really quickly for those who might, know, might not know what the word gospel means, it means good news or salvation or an announcement about a victory. Uh, in the ancient times when there was a war, a messenger needed to be sent back to the king to give good news to what had happened. And depending on how the messenger was returning, for example, if the messenger was slouched with their head down or was walking slowly, the watchtower guard would know from afar that it was bad news. But if the messenger was running quickly with his head high and his chest high, the watchtower guard would know that it was good news. It was salvation. And this is why we get passages like Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who, publish, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so our church has been going through uh, teachings like love, spiritual gifts, humanity. Uh, last week, Mike preached on orderly worship, and now we come to the gospel. And all of all of the, um, the teachings of Paul uh, given so far, have they climax at this chapter 15. And he wants to conclude by pointing us to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So I, I finished my undergrad at, and master's at Christian University. And during that time, I used to study a lot at coffee shops. For me personally, I, I prefer to study at places where there's noise or there's a lot of people. I don't like studying at home or at libraries because it's, it's too quiet. And I don't miss school, but what I do miss is, is studying. And just to clarify, I like learning, I like studying, but I don't like, be putting in, I don't like being put in this box and, and being told what to study or taking exams or um, writing long papers. And so the only time I get to study or read is when I have to prepare for a sermon or personal reading or studying. And I always go to the same Starbucks uh, near this place uh, 
Yeah, near my house. So here's my confession. I, I, I don't drink coffee. Well, yes and no. I drink decaf coffee because I'm very sensitive to caffeine. Even if I have a few, a few sips of coffee in the morning, I won't be able to sleep at nighttime. I get all jittery and I don't feel like, I, I don't like how my body feels generally being on caffeine. And so when I order something at Starbucks, I always say, can I get a small decaf coffee? And yes, for, for some of you hardcore coffee drinkers, I know that's, it's heresy that I go to Starbucks and I ask for decaf coffee and then I call it a small. So I, I think they call it like a, a, a grande or what's a, a tall, a tall, but it's a small. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't, I don't drink coffee. And what's interesting is that science is showing evidence that consumption of healthy, so healthy amounts of coffee, probably one a day, is actually beneficial for you. And so here are some statistics that I pulled from online. Number one, coffee can improve energy levels and make you smarter. Number, <laughs> number two, some of you guys are like, take off the lid and just... Coffee can help you burn fat. There are essential nutrients in coffee. Number four, there are antioxidants in coffee. And there are a bunch more that I don't have time to name. Decaf coffee, on the other hand, has some benefits, but not as much as caffeinated coffee. And for some of you guys, you guys have been drinking a decaf version of the gospel. It might look the same. It might taste the same. But at the essence of it, it, it lacks the true life-transforming power that it's supposed to have. And so today's message, I want you to rethink the gospel and what those implications mean for your life. So I believe Apostle Paul tells us at least four things in this passage. Number one, the need for the gospel. Uh, number two, the person of the gospel. And then number three, the power of the gospel. And then four, the, the purpose of the gospel. So the need, the person, the power, and the purpose. So just very concise and neat and hopefully easy for you guys to follow. So point one, the need for the gospel. Uh, Paul says, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So since Paul is addressing Christians here, uh, I'm going to do that first. And if you're not a believer, if, you don't, if, if Christ is not your Lord and Savior, if you're not a Christian, this will still be relative to you. So when Paul, when, when Paul talks about standing here, he's thinking about war. And Paul would have been familiar with Roman soldiers and war since he was surrounded by it all while he was imprisoned or doing missionary work. This is why also we get in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. He says that we need to put on the whole armor of God and when we do, not that we might stand, but we will stand. And if you're standing in battle, you've claimed victory. The worst place to be on battle is, is on the ground, because I would assume that you've been defeated or at least you're about to. And was, as I was preparing and praying over today's sermon, um, my heart felt heavy. Heavy for our church because many of you guys are not standing firm on your feet. How many of you guys are, are tired today? 
Work is beating you up. Waking up in the morning is difficult. You're ridden with worries and anxieties. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's a marital problem, mental or physical issue. Could be finances. Maybe you're just scraping by just enough. And some of you guys are dealing with addiction. You just can't seem to find victory over these habitual sins. Maybe you're struggling with loneliness. And you just want to find community to love and, and be a part of. And some of you guys have been praying and praying and praying and feel like God has been silent. The solution to all this might sound simple, but the answer is worship. And God created us from the beginning to walk in loving, deep, intimate relationship with Him. And the more we get of Him, the more faith, the more joy, the firmer our foundation is in the most difficult situations. He's someone who wants to get involved in our lives and who cares for our souls. He wants you to find freedom and healing from the things you are dealing with right now. For you guys, what are you worshiping besides God? What is robbing you of the joy-filled life that you should be living? God wants us to go vertically for worship, but often we go horizontally for worship. And Apostle Paul says in Romans that we've gone astray, that we worship created things rather than the Creator. We go to things like success, beauty, career, family, materialism, whatever you want to put in there. We say that these things will fulfill us and make us happy. And they do for a bit, but we get the sense that it's never enough. You have a sense of eternity and that love and happiness and fulfillment should last forever. This is why we'll never be satisfied with earthly treasures because what we are looking for in romance, in beauty, in success, in career, whatever it is, it's only found in Jesus. Every other earthly treasure you give your soul to will disappoint you. And it won't last. But the love of Christ will. And just really quickly as a sort of a disclaimer, God wants us to enjoy love and success and, and romance and family and career. But when we elevate these things above God, those things can become very destructive. And some of you guys already know that. You've built idols and you've bowed down to them. Yes, you might come to church, you might serve here and there, you might give offering, but there is something functionally, functionally in your heart that your life is living for right now. You might say intellectually Jesus is your Lord and Savior, but there is something in your heart that's operating. Michael Jordan, which everyone here should know, except probably Blakely, because <laughs> she's a little baby. Um, he's one of the greatest basketball players ever to live. And we can debate and argue that after. Um, he's achieved things in this life that basically everyone in this room will never achieve. Even if we all came together and tried. He's won six NBA championships. He's worth $1.39 billion. His Jordan brand for Nike generates $3 billion annually. He's dated the most beautiful women, lived in the biggest and most luxurious mansions. He's tall and good-looking. He's achieved in a worldly sense success, 
achievement, wealth, that only a small, full, a small handful of people in this world will ever experience. And in an interview he gave uh, not too, I think a couple years ago, he essentially says that he isn't at peace, that he isn't satisfied. With all the things that he's achieved over his life, he's not content. And he actually says that he would give up everything to go back to the game of basketball. Basketball was Michael Jordan's God, little g God. And his identity, and, and now that he doesn't have it anymore, he feels like he has no sense of purpose or meaning. Kobe Bryant, who's considered, is also considered one of the greatest basketball players to ever live, um, says that Michael Jordan and himself are gifted, but also cursed. You know, what he means and what the irony is that they're trying to find in basketball what they're trying to find in Jesus. God created us for worship. So either we'll worship the one true God of the Bible or we'll worship something else. So what is something that will give you everlasting purpose and meaning in life? What is something that will anchor you in the most difficult situations? So this brings us to our second point, the person of the gospel. It says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So do we actually know how far Jesus went to save us? And we know that he died for our sins, but do we actually know the details that he had to suffer and endure for us? And so what I want to share with you guys is in detail how Christ suffered for you guys and for me. I want you guys to see the heart behind Jesus and what he had to go through in chronological order leading up to his death. So around midnight on, on a Thursday, when Jesus asked his disciples to pray for him, because he says, my soul, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. And, and as he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, he stumbles and, and falls on his face in agony and torment. Because for the first time, he's getting a taste of God's wrath and feeling the weight of sin that he'll have to bear for you and me. He was under such intense stress that he actually started to sweat drops of blood from his face. And then he pleads with God, he says, let this cup of wrath pass from me. But he chooses to stay and say, not my will be done, but yours. Soon after, the religious leaders and Peter, without a warrant for arrest, unjustly come and seize him in the middle of the night. The only reason why they did this was because if they did it during the daytime, unjustly, without a warrant for arrest, there would have been an uproar. All the people who followed Jesus would, there could have been a breakout or war could have happened. And as Jesus is taken away, he calmly abides. He's put in this unofficial court held by the religious leaders without good evidence and they try to find, <coughs> excuse me, without good evidence, 
and they try to find him guilty so that they can murder him. Well, Jesus stands alone without friends, family, tired, hungry. They mock him, they punch him, and they spit on his face. And while his face is battered and covered in blood, he chooses to stay and endure it all. And later that morning on a Friday, he was imprisoned while the religious leaders asked the Roman government to kill Jesus. And Pilate announces that he finds no guilt in this man. He's done nothing wrong. He's innocent. And Pilate repeatedly tries to release Jesus, but he finds himself on a head-on collision with the religious leaders. And there's an uproar because they object. They want Jesus dead. And Pilate, in order to satisfy his critics, commands that Jesus be physically beaten and tortured by flogging. So I want to show you guys a clip um, from The Passion of the Christ. It's, it's a one-minute clip. Um, if you guys are, are squeamish or there's children here, um, yeah, you guys are, are just are free to, to step out. But we're just going to play it for you guys. Jesus would have been uh, scourged 39 times because in most cases, if a person was scourged any more than that, they would have been dead. So we have Jesus here in critical condition. A few hours later, Pilate, hoping that this would be enough to release Jesus, is still faced with objection and opposition, and he has no other choice but to crucify him dead on a cross. And Jesus, literally bleeding out to death, is is taken by the Roman soldiers, where they spit on him, they put a crown of thorns on him, and they repeatedly strike him on the head with a staff, mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Approaching noon that Friday, Jesus is forced to carry in public this heavy cross to his final execution place just outside the city walls. They grab large, thick metal nails and hammer, metal nails and hammer them into his hands and his feet. And as he's being crucified between two thieves, The religious leaders yell and mock him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen one. And Jesus has nothing but compassion for his enemies and says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And on the cross, Jesus bears the weight of every hell and every sin and the full wrath and condemnation in our place. And he yells out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with his last breath, he cries out, It is finished. And he tastes death in our place. So why would Jesus go through all of this? It's because he loved you and he loved me. It wasn't the nails or the soldiers that kept Jesus on the cross, but it was the unconditional and unrelenting love that Jesus had for sinners like you and me. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. 
Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Jesus, who is love, bears all things, believes in all things, and hopes in all things, and endures all things for the sake of our salvation. God, in his love and mercy and grace, leaves heaven and comes down to save broken, hopeless, condemned sinners, knowing that we would continue to take his grace for granted every day. Jesus says in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Luke writes in Acts 4, 12, that salvation is found in no other, in no other name. Under heaven can be given to mankind but we, by which we must be saved. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ. And Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, but this is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And so what is the gospel? That you work up a moral goodness by coming to church, giving tithes, and trying to be a good person? No, that's, that's what religion is, and that's the opposite of the gospel. The scripture says that no one is righteous, no, not one, and that we all fall short of the glory of God. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you try to be, God, will, God says it's never going to be enough because we've sinned against a holy and perfect and just God. And out of his goodness and out of his justice, he has to punish sinners or else he would be seen as a crooked judge. And if you don't believe that Jesus, if you don't believe that you deserve hell, then you actually minimize the work of Jesus on the cross. And you think that you can be your own savior. The gospel is that Jesus obeyed all the laws perfectly and that he was without sin. He was innocent, as Pilate says. And when we believe that he died for our sins, it's a legal exchange. His perfect moral righteousness clothes us forever. You have the assurance of salvation for all eternity. And the wrath and condemnation that we deserved is brought down on Jesus on the cross. So we're not saved on our moral goodness, not by our law-keeping because we break it every day, not on our effort because it's never going to be enough, but by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is finished, he says, on the cross. He has won. He is our victory for once and all. If Jesus is our Lord and Savior, what what should that look like? And this brings us to our third point, uh, the power of the gospel. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
here it's not talking about like a literal falling asleep, like they were taking a nap. They were dead. These people died of old age. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to Cephas, which just means Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 people, and then he appeared to Apostle Paul. And there was at least two ways that people responded to seeing Jesus. Some people casually just went on with their lives and never became Christians, and they, didn't, and they believed in vain, which Paul says in verse 2 uh, earlier in, in this chapter. And the others, like the disciples, Thomas, James, Apostle Paul, and the rest of them gave up their lives to follow Jesus. Literally all died as martyrs. Some stoned to death, some pierced with a pole, some fed to lions, and some crucified upside down. We have Thomas who doubted who Jesus was all through his ministry until he saw Jesus post-resurrection and put his fingers in his wounds. James, who was Jesus' brother, abandoned him at one point and could never believe that his own brother was the long-awaited Savior, but became a Christian when he saw Jesus resurrected. Apostle Paul, who actually persecuted the church, was a murderer and was one of the most respected religious leaders of his time. He abandoned it all after he encountered Jesus. He was beaten, stoned, imprisoned, shipwrecked, ridiculed, and eventually was murdered for the gospel. Why would they give it all up? Comfort, finances, reputation. How did over 50% of Rome become Christian? It's because they actually saw and experienced the resurrected King and Savior. Jesus was crucified dead on a cross as a criminal and as a heretic. He was seen by the public, friends and family, as a failed religious leader and not a savior. But we know that the death of Jesus on the cross was not a failure, but the enthronement of his kingship and the triumphant entry for all who want to be saved. And so for you guys, what side are you guys on? Have you sort of casually just gone on with your lives doing religious activity? Or have you actually encountered the risen king in your own lives and have moved from religion to relationship? Following Jesus can never result in a casual encounter, but should radically change everything about your life. Uh, I have three older brothers, uh, no sisters, and we grew up in a pastor's house, and there should be a picture actually of us. So <laughs> this, uh, this was, I was probably like 22 here. Uh, I'm 31 now, so this was, this was a while ago. And that's my brother James on the left, to the right, Stephen. Paul, and then, and then there's me. And I, I actually think we were, we were going clubbing that night. And so we all, we got dressed up. Thankfully, God redeemed two of us because we're pastors now. 
And so, yeah, this is a picture of us, and this is probably one of the rare pictures that we have of us all together. And so at one point, we lived in California uh, where we went to school for a bit. Uh, Two of my brothers were all-state wrestlers, the two biggest guys, so you can tell. Uh, My other brother, he played football, uh, varsity football, and basketball. They were all in good shape. And so when I moved to Toronto, um, I was about 10 or 11, and because I looked up to my brothers, as as much as they beat me up and and picked on me, I still looked up to them, and I wanted to get in good shape and and be athletic. So I started lifting weights. I was probably 14 or 15. I started lifting weights. Um, In the past couple years, I've taken Muay Thai, boxing. I've I've competed in jiu-jitsu competition. And I just love to exercise. I enjoy CrossFit, basketball, running, biking. And when I was young, I didn't know how important it was to supplement your exercise with a healthy diet. And cooking for, and cooking for myself and, and eating healthy is something I, I really enjoy. I think there should be a picture. So this is $70 worth of groceries. Um, it's a meal prep plan that I did. And it's 25 meals. We have breakfast, lunch, dinner, um, all whole foods, organic. There's chicken, there's rice, broccoli, beans, all that stuff. Probably making you guys really hungry. Uh, Smoothies I have every single morning. Um, At one point in my life, I did this really crazy transformation. I was, I'm I'm 160 now, um, but before I was like 145 pounds, I was, I was a lot more skinny and, and I got really motivated. At this time, actually, I was so motivated that I quit smoking. I used to smoke for like seven or eight years and I, I quit smoking. I, I just dedicated everything to working out. And so I took all these different supplements that I, I wouldn't recommend. A lot of them are processed. They're not good for your stomach, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I, I took protein powder, vitamins, pre-workout supplements, post-workout supplements, omega-3s, and, and so on. And I, and I got really good result, results. In, in three months, I gained 15 pounds of muscle, and I went from 145 pounds to 160 pounds. Some of you guys treat Jesus like a supplement. He's sort of just an add-on to your life, and you sort of get spiritual blessings You feel nice about yourself, but you haven't fully and radically committed to him. People who encountered Jesus during his three years of ministry on earth all wanted to follow Jesus. But in the gospel, Jesus actually turns them off. He makes the standard and commitment of following him hard. He makes it difficult. He says you have to lose your life, die to yourself, and carry your cross. You have to give up everything to follow me, he says. I can't just be a supplement to your life. Following Jesus calls for radical abandonment and total obedience to him. So if Jesus truly says who he says he is, and he is, and if he truly resurrected from the grave, and he did, the only response would be to bow the knee and worship. And so this brings me to the fourth point, the purpose of the gospel. So Paul says in verse 9 to 10, From the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, 
because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but by the grace of God that is within me. So the purpose of the gospel isn't to make morally bad people good, but it's to make spiritually dead people alive. And Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy because I persecuted the church. How many of you guys today feel unworthy? You feel broken and condemned over your sins. You feel like God can't love you. Repentance just feels like a burden. And the only reason why you would think that God doesn't love you or or can't accept you is because you think that God's love is conditional, but that would totally eclipse the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. You are free. You are a child of God. You are a son or a daughter of the King Most High. You are forgiven once and for all. The purpose of the gospel, as Paul says, is to see the grace of God and that he initiates this saving work in your life so that you can be reassured for salvation for all eternity. No more burden, no more guilt, no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God loves you and accepts you not based on what you do right or wrong, but by the sheer grace and mercy of him so that he can get all the glory. The gospel isn't some mountain with God at the top and that we're on this spiritual journey trying to work our moral way into his acceptance, but it's one path through Christ that God himself comes down and accepts you at the cost of his life. You are made new and free in him. And so live that out in your life with confidence and boldness and freedom. He wants to have an intimate relationship with you. And thankfully, God is not a far-off, distant, remote king who is indifferent about your needs, but he cares for every single detail, pain, suffering, and worry that you are going through right now. The purpose is to give you hope and joy and freedom and victory over sin. But most of all, one day you will get to spend all eternity with Jesus. And that is why the King of kings and the Lord of lords Jesus Christ says, it is finished. And so what are some practical implications that you can take away from this sermon? And Apostle Paul tells us in in verse 2b, this is the latter part, he says, Now remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. So he says to hold fast to the word. Another translation for that could be to meditate, to memorize, to firmly hold um, because of its enormous value. So to memorize, to meditate, and, and to firmly hold because of its enormous value. 
And this also ties into what Jesus says in John 8, 31, where he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And they are talking about the living, breathing, and life-giving word of God. Uh, Adam and Emily, they have a, <laughs> his head just goes right up. Um, they have a 11-month-old baby, right? 11-month? Yeah, 11-month-old baby. And, and she's just so cute. And almost every Sunday, I get a chance to hold her. One, because I like children, but sometimes, literally, Emily will come by and says, Who wants a baby? And she'll do like this handoff. And the next thing you know, I don't see her for the next hour asking for the baby back. And, and that's okay for the first 15 minutes. Then my arms start to get tired. And some of you guys are laughing because you know what I'm talking about. My arms get tired. But I would get to hold fast to Blakely because she's so precious and I know the value of her. How much more precious is the Word of God? Do you guys actually believe that, that this is the Word of God, that this is sufficient for everything that you need? If you are a Christian, I want to encourage you to get alone with God every day. Not just one time. I know we have this sort of Western mindset that hanging out, or not hanging out, but having a devotion with God, you know, 10, 15 minutes is enough. That's sort of our standard. But I want to encourage you guys to spend multiple times during the day, whether it's in the morning time, whether it's in the evening time, whether it's between shifts at work or in between breaks, just praying for a minute, just saying, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you, God, for, for your mercy. When you're going through difficult times through the day, pray for patience. You know, get along with God. Devote yourself to meeting God every single day through prayer and scripture reading. Meditate on the Word of God and let it tenderize your heart so that you can be more like Jesus every single day. And in a world of busyness, in a world where busyness is a badge of honor, I know there's a hundred things fighting for your attention as soon as you wake up. Hold fast to the Word of God because it's a guaranteed encounter with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And when you wake up, either you'll preach the decaf version of the gospel to yourself or you'll preach the life-giving and life-transforming gospel that God wants you to hear, trust, and obey. So just to close, uh, I'm reading this book called Dangerous Calling by Pastor Paul Tripp. Should be, uh, so that's actually what he looks like and how he dresses. But what he says, so don't let his mustache distract you. But what he says is, is, is so true. He says this, quote, If you are a Christian and you are not reminding yourselves again and again of the nowism of the gospel, that is the right here, right now benefits of grace of Christ, you will be looking elsewhere to get what can only be found in Jesus. If you're not feeding your soul on the realities of the presence of the promises and provisions of Christ, you will ask people situations, and things around you to be the Messiah that they can never be. If you're not attaching your identity to the unshakable love of your Savior, you will ask the things in your life to be your Savior, and it will never happen. This is still him speaking, by the way. If you're not requiring yourself to get 
your deepest sense of well-being vertically, you will shop for it horizontally, and you will always come up empty. If you are not resting in the one true gospel, preaching it to yourself over and over and over again, you will look to another gospel to meet the needs of your unsettled heart. End quote. Do whatever you have to do to get alone with God every single, week, every single day. And let's not prioritize our quiet time around our day, but our day around our quiet time. Like how different would your lives look? How much more patient would you be? How much more loving would you be? How much more sacrificial would you be? And today, if, if you're not a Christ follower, if, if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, if this is the first time that you've been to church and, and you, you've experienced this type of worship service, God wants to meet you right where you are right now. You don't have to tidy yourself up but he wants you to receive his love and mercy and grace today. And so if you want to receive Christ as your Savior and you feel like something is tugging at your heart, I want to encourage you guys uh, to come up after service uh, when everything is done and me and and some of the other pastors uh, will pray for you guys. And so I'm going to pray and then we're going to enter in our time of response, communion. God, thank you that you are good and that you are faithful and that you love us so much that you would send your son, Jesus Christ, to die for undeserved sinners, people who are condemned. Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was abandoned on the cross so that now we can get God. Jesus was cursed on the cross so that we could be blessed. Jesus was broken on the cross so that now we could be made beautiful. And this is the gospel, that it's by your grace and your love and your mercy that we are saved. We pray all this in Jesus' name. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.